Africa rise and shine Africa tuona Africa amka na unai It is 800 hours Central African time. This is the last hour of Africa Rise and Shine. My name is Spumele Lezondi. I'm standing in for Lulu Kapu this morning. You are listening to Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. You can find us on 15255 kilohertz on the 19 meter band if you're in West Africa. You can also find us on 802 on the DSCV audio bouquet. I am with Anne Musa, Tabisoli Huku and Fikile Lingwati. Your top stories. UN condemns North Korea's latest missile launch. South Sudan camp crime cut by half. WFP calls for urgent funding to assist Tanzanian refugees. In economics, China's RNF to invest $2.2 billion in Zimbabwe. And in sports, African nations prepare for FIFA World Cup qualifier. Here's Anne Musa. Very good morning to you, I'm Anne Musa. Torrential rains have killed more than 40 people in Niger's capital, Niamey, and other parts of the West African country. The Director General of Civil Protection and Disasters, Abubakar Baku, says hundreds of homes have been destroyed in rains just outside Niamey. The rains began on Saturday in the capital and surrounding areas. The government of Niger is providing emergency food assistance and aid organizations are providing shelter and other immediate help. U.S. President Donald Trump has visited the state of Texas where rescue efforts are continuing following widespread flooding. The tropical storm Harvey has left, uh, has led to a record amount of rainfall and huge parts of Africa's third largest city, Houston, are under water. At least 11 people are known to have died, the BBC's Nada Taufik reports. President Trump has been eager to show his support for Texas. His first stop on his visit was to the storm-battered city of Corpus Christi, where cleanup efforts have begun. There, he told residents he wanted his administration's response to be a model example and promised to get the region back up and running immediately. But he avoided traveling to Houston in case his visit hampered rescues already underway. The city continues to grapple with more loss of life. A police officer on his way to work drowned after being trapped in his flooded patrol car. Gunmen have abducted 11 people from a bus as they traveled close to Nigeria's southern oil hub, Port Harcourt. The kidnapping is the third such incident in just two months. The regional police commissioner, Ahmed Zaki, says efforts to locate the victims are ongoing. The region near Port Harcourt is a known hotspot for kidnappings by groups looking to receive ransom payoffs and was the scene of an abduction that saw 16 people snatched earlier this month. The United Nations peacekeeping mission in the Democratic Republic of the Congo, Monosco, has condemned what it calls the violation of one of its officers in the Kassar region by Congolese army soldiers. The troops forced their way into the Monosco complex in Kananga, allegedly in pursuit of a local journalist who had entered the building seeking refuge. Matt Wells reports. 
Special Representative Maman Sadiku described it as a very serious incident carried out under the orders of a senior officer and reminded the DRC government that UN premises are out of bounds under the status of forces agreement. He called on the government to uphold its obligations under the agreement and to hold army personnel involved accountable. Press freedom is one of the pillars of democracy, said Mr Sadiku, adding that freedom of expression for journalists and others was shrinking across DRC. And finally, Zimbabwean President Robert Mugabe has described the late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi as a dictator. Mugabe, however, says this did not give the West the right to kill him in the manner that they did because he stood for the interest of his country and wanted to see a united Africa. Ironically, Mugabe himself is often labelled a dictator. He had this to say about Gaddafi. They come to Libya. Very good friend called Gaddafi. We didn't believe from a democratic point of view that his system was democratic. He was the dictator, we agreed. But a friend of his people, a lover of his people, one who desired that his people should develop. And that's the news headlines at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Thank you very much, and Musa. Let us start in Kenya now. The petition to nullify the re-election of President Uhuru Kenyatta is expected to end on Thursday, clearing the way for seven Supreme Court judges to deliver their judgment. Already one of the lawyers representing Kenya's Electoral Commission has legally discredited submissions made by the presenter of the petition, that is opposition leader Raila Odinga. Meanwhile, independent legal experts are giving their overview of the submissions that have been made so far at the court by parties involved in the petition. James Shimanyula has the story. In his lengthy submission, veteran lawyer Professor Patrick Lumumba Representing Kenya's Electoral Commission explained to the seven judges of the Supreme Court why the Commission's declaration that Uru Kenyatta had won the 2017 presidential election should not be changed. This court should be very reluctant to overturn the will of the people of Kenya unless it can be demonstrated that indeed that will was subverted. Using a rare analogy to show that Uru Kenyatta won, and his victory should not be nullified. Professor Lumumba brought this factor to the judges. Your lordships and your ladyships, ours is midwifery. We delivered a baby. That baby is alive and well. You are being asked to strangle the baby. Decline the invitation. Decline the invitation because the baby is alive and well. Legally tearing apart opposition leader Raila Odinga's petition, Lumumba retorted emphatically. This petition is destitute of merit, and because it is destitute of merit, it should suffer only one fate, the fate of dismissal. 
During submissions, Odinga's lawyers highlighted allegations of voter intimidation and lack of integrity against Uhuru Kenyatta and multi-practices committed by the Electoral Commission during presidential election. This is how Ernest Munguti, one of Kenya's independent legal experts, characterized the vices. Allegations against the IEBC and uh, the president are very, very fatal because they may even drift this country into a civil strife if they are not well handled by the judiciary. Lawyers participating in the case they have top legal minds will articulate the law and the facts and will not be allowed to be swayed by the political affiliations in their hearts. Now, the general public is waiting anxiously for this decision because this decision will make the judiciary or break it. Apart from well-known and relatively unknown lawyers representing Kenya's electoral commission, as well as opposition leader Raila Odinga and President Uru Kenyatta, the Supreme Court has allowed three so-called friends of the court to make legal independent submissions. Kenya's Attorney General, Githumuigai, one of them, has a tasked explanation of a friend of the court. A friend of the court is a party who comes to assist the court to appreciate either a special set of laws or a special set of circumstances or facts. He is not aligned to any party. He is not for either party. That was Kenya's Attorney General Githumuigai. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Now, Kenya's main opposition, the National Super Alliance, or NASA, says the country's electoral authority has failed to heed a court order allowing scrutiny of the body's computer servers as it seeks to prove this month's presidential election was rigged. The alliance alleges that members of Kenya's ruling Jubilee Party hacked the Independent Electoral and Boundaries Commission system to ensure that President Uhuru Kenyatta would win a second term. Channel Africa's Kumbero Mujarere spoke to Dr. Patrick Maluki, a political analyst from the University of Nairobi. They spoke about some of the key arguments that have so far been raised in the hearing. Bye. At the end of the day, yesterday, the IEBC lawyers had responded, but the, the Jubilee lawyers had not responded. So basically, it's a legal process, which we cannot uh, give a lot of details on at, this moment, at the time. Uh, but um, uh, the, 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 the process is uh, very fair, it's free, uh, it is being heard um, to the public, and therefore we have to give the judges enough time uh, to hear, digest, and then arrive at a decision. At a decision. Uh, quite a number of parties are involved, friends of courts, uh, which include like uh, the Attorney General and other interested parties. Has Chris Musando's issue been discussed at the hearings and what kind of dimension does Chris Musando's issue add on the opposition's case, Dr. Maluki? Uh, as at yesterday, there was nothing of that kind because there is no direct link between uh, the death of Musando and um, uh, what happened. So that matter has been in the media but has not been raised 
at uh, the, 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 the Supreme Court. Now, the opposition has been given limited access uh, to the Electoral Commission's computer system. This includes access to firewalls and levels of access and GPS locations from each electoral kit. The parties will also be given access uh, to the official tally forms uh, from the polling stations and constituencies. Will this go far enough, uh, do you think, uh, Doctor, in terms of addressing the suspected irregularities? Yes, in uh, its wisdom, the court allowed limited access by the parties to the IBC uh, system uh, to verify past issues of alleged hacking, uh, whether the system operated uh, as it was. Uh, well, of course, uh, uh, that word limited uh, is only the court which can say how much a particular party can go into the, 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 the electronic systems of the uh, IEBC. And therefore, the idea is to allow interested parties to present credible information about the, the claim and counterclaim. Because like the NASA team will be trying to show that uh, the electronic system was interfered with and therefore the process was not fair. The IBC be trying to show that um, the, the electoral system works well. As they have argued, it was just like a bunch of a conveyor belt. It only transmitted the result from the constituent level for national calling, and therefore that's what they be trying. So, and this also, like uh, the Jubilee team, will also be trying to show uh, that um, they had nothing to do with the electoral system. And I think um, we, at this stage, each party is still building its case, uh, and um, that uh, freedom to access IDC uh, uh, systems, electronic systems, is uh, supposed to, uh, to permit or to allow NASA, who are the petitioners, to actually verify if they were malpractice or not. That is political analyst Dr. Patrick Maluki on the line from the capital of Kenya, Nairobi, and he was in conversation there with Kumbero Munjadare. 8.13 Central African Time. Find us on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One if you are looking for us there. Or you can find us on Rise Shine Africa. That's the program's Twitter handle. The United Nations Security Council has joined the Secretary General in condemning the latest ballistic missile launched by North Korea while calling on all states to strictly, fully and expeditiously implement UN sanctions against Pyongyang. The medium-range ballistic missile flew almost 3,000 kilometers off the North Territory of Japan with Tokyo calling it an unprecedented and grave threat. The Council met in an emergency session on Tuesday where it adopted a presidential statement condemning the outrageous actions, as they called it, and threats against a UN member state just three weeks after imposing stiff new sanctions against the DPRK after it launched two long-range missiles in July, Sean Bryce Peace reports. Defiance from Pyongyang. With their latest missile launch flying directly through the airspace of a UN member state, with condemnation swift from Japan, the ambassador to the UN, Korobesho. We hope that we can, the Security Council can find the right way to proceed in order to change the course of North Korea. Obviously, Japan feels that we need to put pressure, more pressure on uh, North Korea than before, but obviously we'll have to discuss how to do that. 
While council members have hinted at tightening further the sanctions regime, the focus for now was on implementing the existing sanctions agreed to just three weeks ago. Ambassador Anne Gueguin is France's deputy permanent representative. The DPRK must understand that we are collectively, unequivocally and resolutely prepared to to react to its reckless actions with determination and with firmness. We are ready to work with our partners in the Security Council to take any useful initiative to prevent further escalation and rigorously implement the latest measures adopted in early August. The DBRK must dismantle its ballistic and nuclear programs and must return to serious negotiations. The UK's Matthew Rycroft was among those calling for the international community to further pressure North Korea. These latest acts by North Korea are illegal, provocative, outrageous and reckless. Uh, The United Kingdom stands with the people of Japan at this difficult time uh, and we stand with all the countries who want to make sure that international law prevails uh, over uh, a brutal dictatorship. Uh, The Security Council came together unanimously to support uh, the increased sanctions resolution 2371 and I hope that all of my colleagues will come together with the same spirit of unity uh, to respond today uh, as uh, unitedly and firmly as we did then. Earlier, U.S. Ambassador Nikki Haley said that enough was enough regarding the latest launch, while the White House released a statement warning that all options were on the table. We are going to um, talk about what else is left to do to North Korea. No country should have missiles flying over them like those 130 million people in Japan. It's unacceptable. They have violated every single U.N. Security Council resolution that we've had. And so I think something serious has to happen. Despite the latest condemnation, the DPRK is rumoured to be preparing for its sixth nuclear weapons test, with South Korean officials indicating they've seen signs of preparations at an underground test site in the country. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. Your time is 8.17 Central African time. You're still listening to Africa Rise and Shine right here on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spumelele Zondi. I'm with you until 900 hours Central African time, and I'm standing in for Lulu Gabu this morning. Now, according to a new report by the charity Water Aid, food alone cannot solve the world's malnutrition crisis. The recently released report reveals that water, sanitation, and hygiene make up the second leading cause of starvation at growth in children after underweight births and warns that uh, treating water and food separately cannot prevent malnutrition. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by WaterAid's regional advocacy manager in South Africa, Chi Lufi, in Southern Africa rather, that is Chi Lufia Chi Leshia. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, Chi Lufia. Hello, good morning. Mm. Um, Chi Lufia, can you just tell us about um, the malnutrition crisis that you talk about here? I think you're right to call it a crisis. I mean, we have approximately 155 under five who are stunted because they're not getting the right nutrition. This is a, a global figure released by WHO in 2016. And in Southern Africa, we are seeing stunting levels as high as 35 to 50 percent in some countries like Zambia, Madagascar, and so on. And, you know, stunting is a manifestation of malnutrition. Uh, and it shows up as uh, children being short for age, but actually what you are not seeing are the, the sort of hidden 
uh, cognitive underdevelopment that's happening and other sort of uh, disadvantages that we are giving children because they are not well fed. So it is indeed a crisis in Southern Africa and as well as globally. Mm. Um, and you are saying that water and sanitation are a part of this. How are they a part of this? Because a lot of people would think that, um, it's, um, as you say, children are not being well fed. They would think it's a nutrition problem and not necessarily a water and sanitation problem. Exactly. But we, I think for a long time we've underplayed the fact that to eat food, you need for food to be meaningful for your body, you need to be able to keep it in. Uh, and uh, the statistics have shown us year after year that uh, diseases caused by dirty water, lack of sanitation, such as intestinal worms, diarrhea, are affecting a large number of children in Africa, Asia, and other parts um, of the world. And we know that as long as you have persistent diarrhea, your ability to absorb nutrients is compromised. And, and so this is the big issue. And we still have in the world today huge numbers of people without adequate access to clean water and many people defecating in the open and poor access to sanitation facilities. So this means that food is continually contaminated uh, and people practicing bad hygiene practices. So necessarily as widespread as you would expect. People not washing their hands at critical times because the water is not available means that when they feed their children, they then contaminate the food that they give them. So that's really the, where the link is happening. And so no matter how many efforts we make at producing better, more food, more diversified food, if we don't pay attention to the fact that uh, the food is being prepared in unsanitary environment and children are being exposed to fecal food, then we are really not uh, going to win the battle very soon. Um, what's causing this in Southern Africa? Could it be a lack of education perhaps or are there other problems? Well, we, well the big issue really is around sanitation. We know that uh, very many governments have been making efforts to provide water. We still have a long way to go there, but the sanitation crisis continues to be quite a big one. So. We have countries where uh, open defecation, even in the cities, is quite prevalent, like Madagascar. So when you go there and you find that nearly half of the Malagasy children are stranded, it's really not a surprise because there is a correlation between um, this inavailability of adequate sanitation facilities and the quality of food they're taking in or the contamination of the food that they're taking in. Mm. Um, and you say that there are three countries that are doing well in their response to malnutrition and water. Um, which are these countries? What are they doing well? Well, the, the, the report that we've put out called Recipe for Success is just really uh, looking at where, in which countries have they been able to, to give a multi-sectoral response to the problem of malnutrition. Are there cross-integrated plans, programs, financing mechanisms to address the problem from various angles, not just from a nutrition um, perspective where we say, all right, better, more diversified food, but how do we ensure that there's also um, ministries of water uh, adequately involved in ensuring that water is available, ministries um, of health, ensuring that hygiene uh, practices are being adopted and being sustained, So Cambodia, Niger, and Zimbabwe are highlighted in our report as countries where we have seen 
cross-integrated plans and programs that have been rolled out. Of course, they still have a long way as well to achieve, um, um, to eliminate malnutrition, but what we are saying is that the good indications of integrated planning uh, and increasing funding to those integrated plans is a really uh, good step forward. Mm. Um, where does the reports go once you've compiled it? Do you deliver it to various governments? Do you leave it online? Are there engagements that take place? Well, I mean, that's a really good question. I mean, <laughs> you're right that it doesn't help us to have such a, a good report that emphasizes the need for increased political will because that's one of the things we're saying, like in Cambodia, has brought about the cross-integrated planning without getting it to the political players that we need to uh, to have the will. So one of the few things that we do, first of all, is to try and use platforms like yours on Channel Africa and speak to your audiences, get people to understand what's happening and the interconnectedness of the issues. Uh, the other things we're doing, this week our colleagues are in the Stockholm Wild Water Week and it's a gathering of uh, very many people interested in, in water and sanitation and hygiene. And it's being uh, presented and discussed there. Lots of decision makers, ministers are, are in attendance. Uh, another initiative that we know is happening is with the African Development Bank and the president of the African Development Bank has started an initiative on nutrition um, from the angle of improving food uh, production. But we are also engaging very actively there in terms of trying to push that they, they focus on nutrition-sensitive um, aspects as well from a, a multilateral African bank like the AFDB. So those are sort of the, the platforms that we, we hope to use even more to get this the prominence that it needs. But in every country where we are able to reach through the programs that we have, we want to get this out, but also hoping that some of your audiences on this and others will also be able to take this kind of information to their decision makers and politicians. Um, uh, Chilufia, you did say that um, there are countries like, for example, Madagascar that have massive problems. But do you look at why there are those massive problems? Perhaps governments uh, um, have other challenges that are then creating that problem? Or do you just look at the problem and say, well, it needs to be solved. It doesn't matter what's causing it. No, I think to be realistic, we have to be uh, mindful of all of the other problems. We can't solve all of the other problems, but we try and understand the political economy in which those problems are occurring. So why is it that uh, there hasn't been a multilateral response before? And we realize that in many countries, there hasn't been the recognition. Um, and in other countries, there hasn't been the political will. In some countries, there hasn't been very limited data about the extent of the problem, uh, and so they see one, they see stunting as the issue, but they don't recognize it as being linked to all of these other uh, aspects of water sanitation and hygiene. So we try and understand all of those drivers, and we we can't deny that a lot of our countries are, are poor, and we um, the economies are growing very slowly, and we have huge numbers of people living in poverty, and that means that they don't have the basic services to enable them to have access to clean water, adequate sanitation, and even to practice um, a hand washing at critical times. So we try and understand that and then make recommendations that help uh, to resolve at least the most immediate or the most practical given the resources that countries have. But it's not an easy task. That's why we, we are advocating here that, you know, let's mm-hmm. make smart choices and um, 
integrated ways of looking at problems so that when we tackle one, we try and, and address uh, a multiplicity of other problems. Yes. All right. Chilufia Chileshe, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much. Chilufia Chileshe there is Water Age Regional Advocacy Manager in Southern Africa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Residents of a camp for internally displaced people in South Sudan have worked with the United Nations in the country to cut incidents of crime in the camp by half. The Protection of Civilian Sites, or POC, in Bentiu, which was established by the United Nations Peacekeeping Mission, UNMIS, currently accommodates 115,000 people, all of whom have fled their homes as a result of the ongoing conflict in South Sudan. Francis Yibare. Yeri Bari, rather, of Ghana is the United Nations Police Coordinator for the POC site. Daniel Dickinson met him in Bentiu and asked him to describe the security challenges in and around the POC. Well, the POC, I think you all recall the population is quite large. We are talking about over 120,000 internally displaced persons. Uh, that has been an issue. And also, looking at the size of the camp, uh, together with the nature uh, of the perimeter. Uh, it has been a challenge uh, in trying to keep the civilian character of the Pew Society. Does that mean you have uh, criminals operating in here, or what does that mean? Criminality, indeed, is part of society, but we have been able to reduce this criminality to the barest minimum. Can you give me an example of the sorts of criminal acts that are taking place? Yes, we have uh, issues of fighting, issues of assault. Occasionally we have armed robberies. We have also rape incidents. Uh, But like I mentioned, uh, taking into consideration the various operational measures, particularly coming to talk about robust patrolling 24-7 in this POC, we have also undertaken what we call anti-crime campaign with the community, and this is very significant. Uh, They have helped us to reduce criminality in the POC. We have also taken one additional step of orientating and sensitizing the community watch groups. These people have been very helpful to us over the period, and uh, we have a lot of coordinated search operations, both inside and outside the POC. We do external perimeter search support to the UN military forces, and also do a lot of coordinated search daily targeted and random searches. How easy has it been to work with the community on these issues? The community has been very supportive. I must say, counting from the community world group, the sector leadership, they have all been very supportive to the United Nations Police. And I must say, we have very much accepted. They support us with information sharing. They support us with the world group, particularly in the joint patrols, in the blocks and also in the entire community. And are you seeing any results? Yes, we have been able to reduce crime. We began the year with about 100 over incidents a month. As I speak, we have reduced this to about 51 incidents a month. And I think, looking, considering the population and the nature of this POC, 51 incidents a month, I think, is quite an achievement.
Francis Yiribare is the United Nations Police Coordinator for the Protection of Civilians site in Bentiu in South Sudan. He was in conversation there with UN Radius Daniel Dickinson. It is now time for your news headlines. Yes, and Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussan. The headlines, torrential rains kill more than 40 people in Niger's capital and other parts of the West African country. Amnesty International calls on the Nigerian authorities to investigate unexplained disappearances and the United Nations Security Council have strongly condemned North Korea's firing of a missile over Japan, which Pyongyang has confirmed carrying out. Those are the stories making headlines. Thank you very much for staying with Africa Rise and Shine this morning. My name is Spumela Lezondi, standing in for Lulu Gabu. Your time is 8.32 Central African time. Engage us on Twitter on Rise Shine Africa or Channel Africa One. That is Rise Shine Africa. That's the program's Twitter handle, but the station's Twitter handle is Channel Africa One. Now, South Africa's Center for the Study of Violence and Reconciliations in your report, Violence Against Women in South Africa, a in crisis details the lack of a proper national plan which cuts across all sectors in society and how it's failing women the release of the report which comes at the conclusion of women's month looks at the prevalence of gender-based violence in the country for more on this we are now joined by Arwane Mauda acting learning and knowledge manager at the center for the study of violence and reconciliation hello and thank you very much for joining us Arwane Thank you, Kutumalana. Now, why did you decide to compile this report? Um, As you rightly said, uh, in South Africa, there's still a very high prevalence of violence against women, yet there are legislative frameworks that seek to protect the rights of women. Um, So we really wanted to understand why violence against women still persists um, in the presence of these uh, policies and interventions. Um, so that is why we wanted to take a different approach um, to studying violence against women in trying to, to bridge this gap um, in the literature and knowledge that's been generated in this field. Mm. Now, how did you compile your report? Um, so our report um, was based on life history interviews of uh, survivors of um, violence, so women survivors of violence, um, and uh, we wanted to, uh, to take uh, this approach deliberately in order to put their perspectives and experiences of violence at the center of the study. Um, so really our, our report um, is also an advocacy tool um, to amplify the voices of women who have been through um, uh, abusive relationships, women who have experienced violence. Um, so that is how we, we compile the report because usually a lot is said about violence against women, but it's not said from their perspective. Uh, their narratives are not taken into consideration. Mm. Um, are you saying you also spoke to women who are currently in abusive relationships? Yes. 
Um, so it's it's survivors. Um, some are still in um, abusive relationships. Um, some are divorced. So it's it's different um, kinds of women who have experienced violence, sharing their perspectives and experiences. Mm. Um, Arwani, uh, tell us about some of the stories that you heard from these women. Okay, so a lot of findings um, came out from this report. Um, one of them is, uh, so for women who are in marriages, for example, there is the picture of the enduring uh, married woman. So they stay in these um, marriages and they're told um, to endure um whether it's cultural um, norms or beliefs, they stay and endure in these marriages while still experiencing violence. Um, so that was one of the of the findings. And the reasons that they stay in these relationships um, are for various reasons. Um, so um, one of them is their religious beliefs, their faith. So they believe that um, they cannot be seen as giving up on, on their marriages or their relationships, for example, so they need to stay in that abusive um, relationship. Um, some other reasons include economic factors. Um, so men are usually the providers in the family, um, and women see living um, as a huge opportunity cost because um, now they will not be taken care of. Um, so these are some of the stories. Uh, and some women also um, try to justify why men um, abuse them. Uh, so they will say that it was my fault, I angered him. Um, so we see all these stories um, coming out. Mm. But I would like us to go to individual stories in order to sort of uh, try to figure out what goes on in those relationships as opposed to talking about a collective and and um, generic findings that you had. For example, um, one that you spoke to said um, she would often hear that you are a useless child, you deserve to be raped. So that's one story. Well, um, if you can just give us those individual stories of some of the women. Okay. Um the one story that really stuck out for me um, was one where, um, so this was a, a child, um, so she was still young when this happened, um, and then her aunt, she, she witnessed um, her uncle um, having sex with his daughter, um, and then the aunt said that she also needs to play that game with her uncle. Um, and then she was like, but I don't know the rules of this game. Um, I don't know how to play. And then she was told that, don't worry, your uncle will show you. Um, so this is one story where the family is actually involved in orchestrating um, some of the abuses. Um, yeah, so these are stories like that. And then the one that you mentioned as well, um, so uh, children often don't tell their parents that um, they are going through this because their parents won't give them support. So the particular story there was uh, this woman was going, uh, had been raped um, repeatedly, um, and then when she finally decided to, to tell her parents, um, she didn't get the support that she, she wanted. Mm. Um, and do you make any recommendations here um, in the report? Yes, we do. Um, so you've already alluded to it. 
So we, we do see that there's a lot of interventions with regards to violence against women, um, but these are not coordinated. So South Africa has great policies in general, but we really struggle with the implementation. Um, so uh, there's a lot of different sectors that affect the lack of political will, um, uh, non-collaborative approaches to, to tackling violence against women. So what we're really um, calling for is a, a, a collaborated effort um, to addressing violence against women, and it should just it shouldn't end on paper. So we're really calling for action and for all uh, sectors to be involved. Um, so the government, civil society, and the private sector to to tackle this because this is um, a national crisis. So, for example, the campaign that we had against um, HIV we should be um, addressing this in the same light and um, the same urgency. Um, you also have an online campaign, a social media campaign. Um, what happens yeah. there? Um, so our online campaign is on Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp, and we really want people to to engage with the two questions that we've raised. Um, so the questions are, what can be done to address violence against women, um, and what role can I play um, in, in this? So we really want to see people um, seeing themselves as agents of change, um, seeing themselves as collaborators to the solutions to violence against women. Um, and our uh, Twitter handle is at underscore CSVR, um, hashtag and vow now and VAW, Now Violence Against Women. Our Facebook page is also and Vow Now. Um, so we really want people to, to engage with these two questions, to share their stories, to really um, amplify um, the, you know, the, the fight against violence against women. All right, that is uh, Arwani Mawuda, Acting Learning and Knowledge Manager at the Centre for the study of violence and reconciliation in South Africa. Thank you very much, Arwani. Thank you so much. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Eight forty one Central African time you are still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa as we give you news from an African perspective. Now the United Nations World Food Program needs urgent funding to reverse food ration cuts for refugees in Tanzania. The agency says it needs about twenty three million US dollars. We spoke to Michael Danford, who is the World Food Program Tanzania country representative. So WFP is currently trying to feed over 320,000 refugees in northwest Tanzania. This is a population predominantly of Burundians and uh, Congolese, most who have arrived in the course of the last two years. And given the scale of this operation, we need constant funding from our donors. We estimate that we need about $6 million per month to fund this operation, and regrettably, of recent times, we simply have not been receiving that level, and as a result, we've taken the drastic steps 
to reduce the rations. Let's go back maybe. If you can tell us about these refugees, who are they? Where are they coming from? Since April 2015, we've received over 270,000 predominantly Burundians who have been fleeing the uh, political challenges in that country. And the Tanzanian government has been very accommodating, very welcoming, and we're providing prima facie status to these refugees right up until January this year. They now are wholly dependent on the support they are receiving from the Tanzanian government and also the international community of which WFP is included. So we are trying to meet their minimum requirements and by September we will only be able to provide 60% of the minimum ration on a monthly basis. You say they are completely dependent um, on aid. Um, where, where would this um, money be used? How will it be used um, when, it, or when and should and if it gets to you? So what WFP does, the World Food Programme, we are the feeding agency of the United Nations. So it will be our responsibility to go into the market and procure the food, predominantly from Tanzania itself. So the money is actually going back into the Tanzanian economy. We then move it into the northwest. So we're using Tanzanian transporters. We then need to warehouse that food and then distribute that food. And the food is distributed on a monthly basis whereby the family members come and receive all of the commodities, all of the food rations for the entire month. And the long-term implications if you don't get the help that's needed? Well, the long-term implication is that the food security, the nutrition levels of this caseload will deteriorate. That is Michael Dunford. He is the World Food Program representative in Tanzania. It is now 8.45 Central African time. Tabi Solihuku is in studio. He has your economics. A very good afternoon, or rather, good morning. Egypt has signed a three oil and gas exploration deals for 16 new fields in the Western Desert with at least 81.4 million US dollars in total with Royal Dutch Shell and the US-based Apex International Energy. The Petroleum Ministry says that the first deal will see Shell invest $35.5 million. Egypt, which used to be a net energy exporter and has become a net importer in recent years, as consumption increased while production declined. Following claims of a bumper harvest in Zimbabwe this year, owing to good rains and government's command agriculture, the country's metrological department is going ancient and using indigenous knowledge systems. Indigenous weather forecasting methods are known to complement farmers' planning activities in Africa. Elderly people formulate beliefs about seasonal rainfall by observing natural outlook, while cultural and ritual specialists draw predictions from divination, dreams or visions. Simon Muchemo reports from Harare. At a time when civilization has modernized agricultural activities in Africa, in Zimbabwe, where the experts say the use of indigenous knowledge systems, known as IKS, together with modern science, weather forecasts, would be in use from this year. 
while is the use of IKS will be mind gaming, especially for the young and modern farmers. Authorities in Zimbabwe say the use of ancient methods would enhance climate knowledge among its citizens. Meanwhile, China's RNF plans to invest up to two billion U.S. dollars to revive operations at Zimbabwe Iron and Steel Company, saddled by high debt and gross mismanagement. The Zisco ceased production in 2008 at the height of Zimbabwe's economic meltdown. Zimbabwe's Industry and Commerce Minister Mike Bima says that the teams from RNF had been traveling to Zimbabwe in the past six months to perform due diligence and negotiate the deal. South Africa will harvest 16.41 million tons of maize this season, the biggest crop on record after improved weather conditions across the maize belt boosted yields. The estimate is up 2.7% from the July forecast of 15.96 million tons. The previous record harvest of 14.65 million tons was set in 1981. The Institute of Certified Public Accountants of Kenya has cautioned elected governors against the second county staff, stating that the process may disrupt the service delivery. Since the polls ended, a number of elected governors have announced county staff layoffs, a move aimed at cleansing county payrolls by removing irregularly hired and performing staff. Taraka Niti, Siaya Meru, Usian Gishu, and Machakos top the list of counties where governors have fired staff. The US dollar trades at 13-1 in South Africa. It's at 10-1 in Botswana and at 9-1 in Zambia. 0.77 to the British pound, 0.83 to the euro. Gold $1,319, platinum $1,000 per ounce. The price of Brent crude oil, $51.87 a barrel. Channel Africa. Nine Central African time, eight forty-nine Central African time. Thanks very much, uh, Tabi. So for that update, you can find us on uh, Twitter. We are on uh, Channel Africa One, and a lot of people are interested in uh, the story that was in and Moses Bulatin, where President Robert Mugabe said late Libyan leader Muammar Gaddafi was a dictator. Someone who tweets as relaxing mode or Mengeza is saying that he mustn't look further. He must just take a mirror and see the dictator. And then there's someone who tweets. As as Deza Musia, or otherwise known as August 31st, who is saying if Mama was a dictator, then Mugabe is an evil one. And there is Yisan or W.Y. Sani, who says, in my culture, when an elderly person is about to die, they start saying so much we can never understand. Those are some of the views on Twitter. There are people responding to that story that was in Anmos's bulletin, where President Robert Mugabe of Zimbabwe said the late leader of Libya, Muammar Gaddafi was a dictator. 8.50 Central African Time, your sports news now.
First up in our sports update this hour, four South Africans were on the final of their respective competitions on the last day of the World Student Games in Taipei in Taiwan. Reynard van Rensburg and Henko Ace took part in the main 800-meter final, but none of them finished in the podium position. Jakobas finished fourth in 1 minute 47.59 seconds in a race which was won by Jesus Alvarez Lopez of Mexico with a time of 1 minute 46.06 seconds. Jakobas says they were pushing and shoving in the race. Uh, it was quite a bumpy race. Uh, actually, in... In the warm-up, I had my hamstring, and I, I, trained, I changed my brace tactics to rather start off slowly and build it up towards the end. And uh, everything was going to plan until things got a little bit bumpy here and there. Um, but that's racing; you can't you can't really prepare for those kind of things. But uh, I tried to fight back at the end. Uh, at least got a fourth position. I think uh, if it wasn't for the bumping in etc. things could have went much better but uh, yeah at the end of the day I gave it my best and uh, yeah I just settled for fourth place. Mohamed Belshiri of Algeria finished second clocking 1 minute 46.76 seconds ahead of Amérique Lucine of France in a time of 1 minute 47.8 seconds. Van Rensberg who won bronze medal in the previous games finished eighth in the race, posting 1 minute 49.70 seconds. Van Rensberg also complained about being pushed. Yeah, no, it wasn't a, a good race for me. Um, there was a little bit of push and shoving in the race. And when I got pushed the last 300 meters, I didn't really recover from that. So I had a bad end to the race. <laughs> yeah, it's a great opportunity, this game. So I think especially for young and upcoming athletes. Um, it's my third one I did now. I got a bronze medal at the previous one. Um, so it really, it, it really, I'm um, getting ready for the bigger, bigger um, games like Olympics and also World Champs. So it's a nice stepping stone. South African men's university team lost to South Korea 3-0 in the last match of the World Student Games in Hinshu, Taiwan. Korea goals were scored by Wu Sun-tak, Ji Wan Cho, and Dong Lee Lee. The team made several changes to the starting lineup compared to the previous game. South African coach Karabo Mukhudi says the rotation affected their defense. Yeah, unfortunately, when you need to rotate the squad, you'll always have lapses in, in, in attention uh, because if you notice uh, the regular centre-back, you had a problem, a niggling muscle strain, and we decided to rest him, you know, because we know these, these, these players are going back home and their teams back home will be expecting them to play when they, immediate, when they come back immediately, you know. So what we're trying to do as well is to manage these players so that they don't become overloaded. A Nigerian Cameroon will engage in a heavyweight bout when they meet in a 2018 World Cup qualifying clash at Godswill Akpagbi Stadium in Uyo on Friday evening. Nigeria come into the class sitting pretty at the top of Group B with a full haul of six points following wins over Zambia and Algeria in the first two matches. Cameroon are placed second on the log with two points, having played to a one or draw against the same opponents. If the Super Eagles win both clashes against the indomitable Lions with the second match set for Yaoundé on the 4th of September. And neither Zambia nor Algeria managed to claim the full six points on one offer from the two meetings. Then Gera Draw's team will qualify for Russia 2018 with two rounds to spare. And in the
Cycling News, Italian Matteo Trentin won the 10th stage of the Vuelta Hispana with Britain's Chris Froome retaining the leader's red jersey. Quickstep rider Trentin, who won the 4th stage, pulled clear of his 15-strong breakaway group to comfortably deny Spain's Jose Joaquim Rojas in a dash for the lineup. Another local, Hope Raimi Rosson, took third at the end of the 164.8-kilometer ride from Caravara to Alhana de Moshia. That's a sport news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It is 8.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. UN condemns North Korea's latest missile launch. South Sudan camp crime cut, rather South Sudan camp crime cut by half. WFP calls for urgent funding to assist Tanzanian refugees. In economics, China's R&F to invest $2 billion in Zimbabwe. And in sports, African nations prepare for FIFA World Cup qualifiers. And that wraps up Africa Rise and Shine for today. From myself, Spumela Lezondi producers, Pumuzo Ramagata and Jane Rabotata, technical producer Mario Edwards, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for joining us this morning. You can send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za. You can also WhatsApp us. The number is plus two seven seven six three hundred double three two seven plus two seven seven six three zero zero three three two seven. On SMS, you can find us on plus Plus two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero 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 two seven seven nine six nine five seven nine three zero. You can also tweet us. It's Rise Shine Africa or Channel Africa One. We leave you with Mayway with a song titled Nanan. Bye bye. Yeah, yeah, yeah.